Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for 14th of June 2021. We'll start this week with a conversation about oilseed rape. The harvest value is 435, which is not the upper end of the scale, but it's a groovy price to start with your bonuses on top. And a comment from Peter Raleigh, who's been on our podcast in the past, he picked Ian up on his four ton a hectare crop of rape expectation, and he's saying that in fact, the larvae has had an impact, it's stunted the growth, it's a shorter plant. He thinks a three and a half tonne crop will be a good one this year. So that's tempered Ian's expectations a little bit and I guess keeps the price well supported. And there is talk of the Aussies increasing their canola or their rape acreage by 20% for the coming year, which is the best cure for high prices is high prices. Moving on from oilseed rape, which is still very buoyant, we're going to feed barley, a nice quick easy one, old crop, if you've got some left. If you haven't noticed, it's harvest soon and the price always drops quite dramatically for harvest feed barley. It's been brilliant what has happened to the price of it in the last month and a half. So I would suggest if you have got some left, you pull your finger out and get it gone. It's £180 a tonne in Rand Figures X Farm. A new crop feed barley, 150 So good support for feed barley, good export potential, and we think it won't be trading at the crazy discounts that it did the last year against wheat. So feed barley will be in a better place. Moving on to feed wheat. Old crop feed wheat, well, some of the crowd are on the pitch on that one. 195x for July. I think it might be all over. It totally depends upon timing of harvest and just how many of those boats have been traded into the UK for the second half of July. There's certainly a lot on the books, apparently, but how late are we going to be? Will there need to be some more boats traded nearer the time? Yeah, I think anything above 190 is exceptionally good. Anything above 180, if you end up selling your surplus for that, is still really, really good relative to the bulk of this year's trading. So I don't think it's a time for playing games anymore. I think you need to look at it. I still think July will have an element of demand that will be harder to meet, and one or two farmers are coming a little bit short on the odd contract so it's a movable feast that one not totally sure where that one's going and there's demand into Ensus in the northeast of England, which is still firing away. They've been buying an aggressive price. I mean, the big problem getting the tonnage there is logistics and lack of lorries. That's old crop. New crop, immediate harvest movement into one of our fabulous stores, 165 delivered versus an ex-farm price for November if you keep it on your farm of 168 so there's not a lot in that and if you don't cost storing it or it's an easier thing to just tip it straight in your shed as opposed to take it to an outside store then there's money in that but there isn't a lot of money in storing it at the moment relative to the prices that will be paid at harvest time and then some consumers that period when old turns to new this year there will be a lot of demand early days and there will be some good spot immediate prices for feed wheat so the stores will won't be able to compete with some of those early deals into consumers in August when the harvest finally gets rolling. 
expected harvest date contentious issue i think we won't see barley in earnest until at least the 18th of july which is late so monday the 19th i'd expect to see our first barley's in here i might be wrong on that if this heat continues and on wheat i don't think we're going to see the stuff flowing properly until we get probably to somewhere around about the 9th 10th august i think we will see our first wheats and it won't really get going in earnest until the following week it is a week or eight to ten days behind its normal place in my opinion as i say that's a movable feast with very hot sunshine coming and a dry period it might be brought forward The prices on new crop is still the tug of war between the UK crop looking good or developing well relative to how it went in and the well-established stuff looking exceptional. But it's, as I say, hot, dry next 10 days. So the prospects potentially sentiment-wise will be less farmers inclined to sell it. The question is, will I be talking about drought on next week's podcast? Probably not. Maybe the week after that. That's it, really. That's the roundup. It's pretty dull old stuff. It's mind-numbingly dull this Friday morning when I'm recording this. So got to find something else to do. The farm chat this week is with Nick Padwick, an old mate of mine. He is the farm manager at Kenhill Farms, where the BBC have been filming Spring Watch in the last few weeks. I will admit my little puny recording equipment did look a bit small, considering the barn full of the Beebs kit, but uh, we still managed to get a good podcast off. In fact, there's two, so it's a really good chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Have a great week trading. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 or email info at And now it's time for Farm Chat. Today I've got with me Nick Padwick from Kenhill Farms, or should I say Wild Kenhill Farms. <laughs> Nick, good morning. Good morning, Andrew. It's lovely to have you here at Wild Kenhill in not-so-sunny Snettersham. Beautiful day yesterday, and you come today and it's cloudy. Put my shorts on, I believe the BBC weather, and look <laughs> what's happened. It is 20 degrees, apparently. It is, absolutely, no, 100%. But, but it's, it's um, not going to dry was... the crop up, is it? It's going to be good. <laughs> I mean, that spring barley out the back here, next to Open Skies Cycle Shop, looks over a lovely field of spring barley, and it could do without getting 27-degree burning sunshine on it. Absolutely, it could, 100%. And this weekend will be a tester, won't it? We were 24, 25, 26 degrees, so let's just, yeah, fingers another, crossed that we don't get it. Another week of that beyond then. I mean, we'll start with farming here right now. Yeah. This weather up to now in May has been fantastic. Now it's the point where the sunshine is relentless. Is it going to do damage if it goes on for too long? Yeah, well, look at last year. I think we will see some damage. I think the way our soils are currently, we are silts over chalk, which we should have had with the two years, two autumns and winters of all the rain we've had, four inches more this last year than the year before. So I'm hoping those roots will get into the chalk aquifer Mm -hmm. and there should be some moisture 
And certainly with the weather probes we've got in, the rain gauges at depth down to 60 centimetres, we're seeing there's still quite a bit of water there. I mean, this is quite an undulating area, isn't it? Norfolk, to lots of people, is a flat landscape. But, <laughs> but you know, yeah. West Norfolk has the glacial shaping, if you like. So the chalk is reasonably close to the surface, even on the hills. Is yeah, that... it is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You can see, certainly if you look at Google Earth images, you can see the chalk appearing in some of the ploughed, cultivated fields as they were in the past. Mm. When we put in these probes, I was quite surprised that 50 to 60 centimetres, we were hitting chalk. Yeah, I mean, for anyone, it's not very far from Hanstanton, and the cliffs, famously, there have two colours, don't they? There's yeah, they the do, yeah, yeah. And so that's the dynamic of what's just under the ground Absolutely. here. Absolutely. So with that in mind, 10 days of dry weather isn't going to be enough to damage it, is it? No. If no. we get a nice shower shortly after then, spring barley, to my eye, and last week I walked in some, I've never seen it so tillered, covering so much of the ground. Sure. Its potential is enormous, subject to continuing nutrition. Mm. Absolutely. And the weather and everything that nature will no doubt throw at us between now and harvest. Yeah, so it's either going to be bucket loads of really bold <laughs> stuff worth a little less money, or it's going to be a bit thin <laughs> around the edges. Yeah? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. I'd like a really good quality harvest, so a bit of rain in two weeks. Well, it'd be very nice, but certainly very, very cynical. It'd be nice if we have a high yield, no doubt the prices will no doubt fall and fall and fall. And if we don't have anything, the prices might rise. So. Well, the dynamic <laughs> at the moment is if you looked at Europe, you looked at the UK, the weather in May has been perfect and the price should be going down on the basis of that sentiment-wise. However, other people have trouble. If you wish it on someone else, yeah, Brazil's already absolutely. got a disaster on their corn, and it's now all eyes on the US and weather pattern that is looking like it's going to possibly do damage, and that will drive the market up. So it could be the perfect scenario. Could be. Be nice. Be the first time in a few years to get that. We're talking the price up, everybody, just in case you think we're not. So, Nick, the first time I met you was, there you were, you'd wrote to us and said, I'm thinking of building a grain store in Norfolk. If I did, would you back me? That's right. Gosh. Yeah, you wrote wrote to everybody else, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. And what did everybody else say? Well, funny enough, they all came back and said no. I think a couple of them actually phoned up and asked me to put a bit more meat on the bones. And I think I had a meeting with, am I allowed to say? Probably not. Okay. I had, a me- I had a meeting with one quite well-known trader, and I think they went away and said, this guy is just mad. It's just not going to happen. And then you came back, and I hassled you a bit, I remember, and I don't know why you said yes. Well, we, well the piece of land that it was on was pretty difficult to have <laughs> Imagine, yeah, that's right. Pretty boggy, cruddy stuff. But the reality was it was on a site that used to be part of the East Anglian Real Property Company and down a long track just off Pedder's Way. That's right. And... What you described, I have a vision. So I went, okay, but you did say you're going to build one store. Yeah, I think it was one originally, wasn't it? One 13,000 ton store, yeah. yeah. So what did you do? I did two. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? The machinery was there, you know. Absolutely. If you're going to build one, you may as well build two. Yeah. But you filled them both, Andrew, in the first year. Yeah, you nice filled them both. As I said before, the marks were done. I challenge Andrew, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, we gave you backing to get the backing from the owner and Absolutely. you know to make the decision to do it. You know, we were in a bit of a punchy, ballsy sort of mood at the time. We'd had a couple of good years behind us and nothing could stop us. So, yes, we did commit to it. Yes, it was a stretch to fill it. 
but with the benefit of hindsight, it was exciting. It was a good thing to do. We even got in the EDP. We were famous for five we were. minutes, weren't we? We actually were. I can remember still on top of the grain store yeah. thinking, God, I need to breathe in. I was quite pleased with the photograph that was taken. Yeah. Anyway, you know, as a story, man builds grain store is not one thing, but to build a 26,000 ton grain store is a... But I don't think we broke ground until it was the second week of January. Mm. And I said that I wanted the first drop of grain on the floor by the 5th of May. And we just about did it. I think the first store, we were putting grain in that store and we hadn't finished tidying up. Yeah, it was certainly very close to the line, I remember <laughs> It was, that, yeah. Exciting there, Andy. Yeah, no, it, yeah, we know. And the best thing was you put a concrete road going to it because the road previous oh, to that was awful. And yes. I don't think anyone else would have spent the money on that. You did a deal on that, which, well, that was great. You know, I haven't had the sump of my car taken out by that <laughs> grotty old track. So it, since then, it's become a future store and lots of people know yeah, and have used grain absolutely. from it. So. I think it was a great facility. I think I was very fortunate at the time that at Pickenham, we had several stores that were very tired. Well, most of them, they were the Dutchman e- barns. And exa- stuff. Exactly. And going forward with grain storage, we wanted to do it in a more professional way. Yeah, yeah. Well, the actual bins around that site were built in the 60s, mm. early 60s. So it's mm. very early bulk grain. So Absolutely. it just wasn't geared for the 20, no, you know, 21st no, century. That dynamic... While you were at Pickenham, that was the ballsy thing, and we filled it, and you have to get used to being a storekeeper, which has a different mentality to being a farmer. Or you can't load. That's right. You can load, because we're paying you lots of money to do it. Absolutely, 100%. And that's one of the big changeovers for farmers who've gone into storage, the realisation that someone wants to stay in their yard in a lorry overnight because their hours have run out. You can't Mm. just send them off. You have to be customer-friendly to people all the way up the chain, and you have to be open. You can't go shooting on a particular day if someone says, I need to load it. That's the truth of it. I think that was really quite difficult to try and filter down to the guys that it was a yes, we can, and how high do you want us to jump? The store was always open. Well, the cycle of customer care, we're going to go full cycle when we get to talk about Ken Hill in a minute. The reality is that their extreme customer involvement and customer care is what brings the money in, isn't it? Yeah, and absolutely. Every single person that visits your site is a customer. Absolutely. And uh, that mentality is the one that one yeah. or two people yeah. would take a bit of. No, absolutely. And we, we wanted it to be a pleasurable experience for people to come into the store. And for me, it was about how quick we could turn the place around, 100 tonne an hour conveyors, and just mm. so it was not an issue. So if we did have a big push, we could handle it. I can remember the first time I think I've ever had it in my career where we were drying our own grain. I don't think you were wheeling any grain into us. And I think we started combining at eight in the morning. And I don't think we started drying any grain till about four o'clock in the afternoon when we realized we could actually run it for about an hour and a half and then turn it off. Yeah. We just couldn't keep it going. No, it just, and when you get a dryer going, you have to get it and keep it going. Absolutely, going, going. absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. So we had to have enough grain ahead of us just to even justify starting it up. So there you were. You decided to move on from South Pickenham down yeah. to Hampshire for a Went while. Went down to Hampshire for a yeah. while. Yes, you left, you left the county. Yeah, and you realised the error of your ways. Before I met you, you'd been Farmer of the Year, hadn't you? Gosh, in Farmers Weekly, nineteen forty-two. <laughs> 2009, I believe. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you thought, I'll give Norfolk a go. And you came over to Norfolk, conquered that, and then thought, right, let's go to Hampshire. What's enticed you back? Let's do that. I miss Norfolk. I miss the people. I miss the farming. I actually miss the skies. I can remember going away and then seeing my son, Ben, who was keepering on a a local estate, and coming back and thinking, God, I've missed all of this. It was Mm. just fantastic. So I'd gone down to a fairly intense lettuce business in Sussex, 
and it just wasn't for me. So fortunately had an opportunity to come back to Norfolk at the ripe old age of 52. Gosh. Age has a mental block if you put the block in place. Absolutely, absolutely. I still look 35 because of my mental attitude. (laughs) We then had a fantastic meeting with the Buskell family who own Kenhill Farms. And Harry Buskell very kindly offered me a position here. Now, I reckon the appeal of this is the dynamic of this site. I don't watch Springwatch as a confession. Well, that's outrageous. Because, no, no, because I'm it's kind of It's been on like, for nearly three weeks now, Andrew. Yeah, but I don't watch TV, really, to be perfectly blunt. <laughs> Too many jobs given to me by my wife. But no, the reality is I kind of reads me in touch with nature in the sense of the job and the life I lead. But the Springwatch team is yeah. on your farm up here. But the appeal to you, they must have just declared to you their plans of what they wanted to achieve. Well, look, this goes right back to when I joined the previous manager John Austin had been here for 30 plus years had made some fantastic inroads into farming in a regenerative way hadn't used an insecticide on the place for seven years prior to me arriving we're now 10 years with no insecticides being used that's a top-down decision that you know John stopped using them or John went I think we can do this well I can't really speak for him but I mean certainly he didn't think it was the right thing to be doing environmentally to be throwing around insecticides and I think he wanted to see whether you know whether we actually really need them or whether we are told to use them yeah yeah so we're now 10 years and obviously the neonic ban so we've not used any neonics and we're still growing rape and we're still growing sugar beet at the moment. So coming here, I could see there was a great opportunity to look at how we can make this place more diverse. We were just entering into a new stewardship scheme mm-hmm. and all that, that that might offer us going forwards. We all knew that there was going to be the demise of our BPS payment. Mm-hmm. And what would that look like for a conventional Norfolk farm or any farm? With the rotation, I mean, we grow a little bit of wheat, winter barley, spring barley, all seed rape and sugar beet. Oats. And some oats and a little bit of rye, (laughs) Mr. Dewing, and a little bit of rye this year, which is looking very well, actually. We've got, you know, we're right up against the west coast, against the shoreline. Of the wash. If you look at, if you find Norfolk Lavender on a map, it's... Absolutely, exactly. So we're between Snetcham and Heacham, right on that coast road, which can be glorious, but certainly this last week has been... Can be gloriously... You know, people get bored sitting in that queue. They'll turn into Ken Hill and go, what can we do in here? Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. that's right. Exactly. So looking at the map when I got the job, Mm. there seemed to me to be three elements of the estate. Right against the sea, there's the old railway line that used to run from Kings Lynn to Hunstanton. That kind of seemed to be a natural break. And then we've to the west of that, there's freshwater marsh grazed by some local graziers Mm -hmm. and that works well and then we've got some land that sort of curves around the Kenhill wood which was about 500 acres which I was utterly amazed to see how much black grass there was in those fields were they arable all arable fields sorry yeah so So I came here and there was quite a bit of winter barley and there was quite a lot of black grass growing and I kind of think to myself gosh this doesn't look that productive in terms of soil and we must be spending a lot of money on it it's just that feeling you must be spending a lot of money on it the yield potential is probably not brilliant why are we doing this and we're so close to a freshwater marsh that the water runs through 
to get to the marsh. So am I polluting anything going into the marsh? Were the sort of initial questions. Mm. We're also the wrong side of the road. So all the main arable land was on the east. And we would have to cross the main coast road during harvest. And actually, when the road is chock-a-block, it's brilliant. Because cars can't go anywhere, so they let you out when you're crossing the road to fill up the grain store. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not going to go any slower than they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you've got the arable land. We've got all shapes and sizes of fields, a lot of woods, a real patchwork of woodland around the farm. And I was kind of let loose with Google Maps. And I kind of carved all the estate up. We're now farming rectangles. So we've taken out of my arable land, which is about 700 hectares, we've taken out about 170 hectares of land for six-metre margins. Every field's got a six-metre grass margin or a six-metre cultivated margin. And then there's a patchwork of options from wildflower mixes. The objective of these things is this subsidy for having... Yeah. nice things yeah the long-term vision aspect of it you know the governor you saying look you know we've got a unique spot we've got freshwater marshes we've got this piece of land which is full of black grass and is going to give us a load of grief if we carry on doing yeah. that and we've got a change in bps so you're going yeah. right what are the opportunities what are the options what have we got including an incredibly busy tourist road going up and down outside mm. your door is that the way it works so you're going right how can we make money from this more? For us, it was absolutely environment first. So we were focusing on taking on from what John Austin had left me, which was the no insecticides. Mm. Well, if we increase the biodiversity of every field by putting in margins and taking out field corners, which, quite frankly, with this humongous great big machinery we have these days, mm. why do I want to go poking a combine into a bloody field corner? Yeah. Why don't I just farm in rectangles? Yeah. And then yeah, that's, that, that's... that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Could those strips of grass margins and uh, CS options, could they actually improve the predators and the beneficials, hence in maybe improving my yields in some way? Mm-hmm. Kind of felt right. So can you prove that yet? I can prove it as much that we've not needed still to use any insecticides, which on its own is just fantastic. We've planted about 50, 60 hectares of oilseed rape this year, and we've not put on any chemicals whatsoever right. we've strip tilled in between the planting it's gone in behind a, an enhanced overwinter stubble so i'm not chasing crop off the field to no. get it established and it looks great and i've feel pretty chuffed that we've not used any herbicides of any description or even any fungicides fantastic we don't sell chemical it's okay you can do that <laughs> this at the moment is working for us i'm not saying this is a panacea for everybody it isn't And it's working for us. And there's lots of amazing other farmers out there that are doing a similar job. We're just one in many, many, many. The BBC are on site at the moment doing the spring watch thing live from the farm. Is that because of the extra investment that you've made and all this extra? I, I think with the stewardship we've put in place, and that's on the regen arable side... Our block of ex-arable land, which is the 500 acres I was talking about with the black grass, Mm. with the woodland that's right in the middle of it. So there's a 1,000 acres there that we've put a ring fence around and is our rewilding zone, which houses 40, 41 cows at the moment, 20 Exmoor ponies and four pigs. In the woods? In the woods, in the fields. Go where they like. Go where they like, absolutely. Not supplementary fed. Well, that's a lie, actually. We did feed the cows some hay when we had that snow we've had a successful calving so we bought in calf cows and we've not needed to house them we're able to catch them they're very timid very calm 
Does that teaching you something to say that we're going to expand this? This is going to be a bigger and bigger and yeah, bigger Yeah, look, because Rewilding's, I mean, apart from NEP, who've been doing it 25 years, this is kind of relatively new for us. We don't know what our outcomes are going to be. Charlie Burrell, who farms or used to farm down in Sussex, he changed his estate and put it into all rewilding. So that's 3,500 acres of rewilding. Right. And he did that about 20, 25 years ago. And Isabel Tree wrote the book Wilding. We really don't know at this stage. And this is the exciting bit. You know, the Nepa state are doing one thing with their soil types. We've got totally different soil types in a totally different part of the country. We don't know what we're going to get. We don't know what's going to happen. People have said to us on this journey we're on, have you got any bulls to service the cows? No, because we've only bought females because we don't know if we can house them all at the moment. So that's really exciting. And parts of the estate are changing at different speeds, Mm. depending on soil type and aspect and what's gone on before. And we've actually seen some quite interesting work with the pigs where we'd got an old stewardship margin across the corner of an old wet field. And it had been stewardship for the last 20 years. Pigs have rootled around in that corner. And where we then gone from our 20-year-old stewardship margin to an ex-arable field, and we haven't been farming it for two years, there is a dead line across that field where that old stewardship was. Mm-hmm. So they haven't ventured onto that. They've been on the stewardship, the old stewardship right. land, and they've not ventured they onto the ex-arable land. Why is that? Well, got to be roots, nutrition. Exactly, and stuff to, yeah. exactly. All these things, I mean, I'd be really fascinating. We're finding out an awful lot. And then we've got the traditional marsh, which we put a water penning structure around. Mm-hmm. And we've produced a fantastic 500-acre wetland for breeding waders. The dynamic of the bit that was bringing you some money in, other than the stewardship scheme gives you a certain amount, yep. but the arable crop in the middle there is no longer bringing in definitive cash per se for a product. It's got some cows, some calves or whatever. There's, yep. there's a bit of income. But the dynamic of that is the expectation is for the subsidy to replace the income Less the costs you're saving should equal commercially. Is it possible for that to be an option for everybody? If everybody in the country went, okay, I'll half my farm. No, I don't think rewilding is for everybody at all, far from it. I mean, we are very fortunate where we are that actually kind of works for us. And I've been hearing a lot privately from farmers who, in a group of farmers, won't admit that they're thinking about rewilding, but they're taking out land out of production, which is kind of what I've done. When you know your gross margins and your net margins and, you know, your variable costs, when you know what they actually are, you can then start making those decisions. I can remember as a small boy, Dad used to say to me, because we farmed down in Hampshire, and there were fields and fields and fields that Dad could never grow crops on for one reason or another. I think I was too young to know what it was. I'm sure rabbits played a big part of it. And then when I said to him, so what are you going to do next year differently, Dad? Well, we'll do the same thing. Why would you keep on doing the same thing? That approach, we've looked at what we've got here, because the water-holding capacity of the estate is the limiting factor for its yield potential and its current soil type so we need to kind of start changing that it's the commercial aspect of it rewilding is a high profile and very very sexy thing at the moment yeah it's very woke yeah which is fine how many tons less is ken hill producing with the bit that's come out you know and the point being that if everybody took say 40 percent of their production out if everybody did the same thing which you're saying quite clearly that that isn't for everybody you'll get some city boy come up and say why aren't you rewilding like these good people and you say well it commercially it's just not the right thing to do a i haven't got the land that's dubious enough i've got all good grade two land that if i put something in it grows and i make a profit from it but more importantly if everybody said right okay that's a good way to go and we get subsidized and we can Mm. have some more time off or whatever 
there would be a bucket load less grain produced, fine. What would we do then? We'd import that. You know, here we are doing the right thing ecologically in the UK. Yeah. Where would the replacement come from? But, South America. Yeah. The agricultural industry is under an attack at the moment. Is they're all wrong. You know, they're the people who polluted everything. They're the ones who've done this and the other. They've followed government policy. They've done what they've been told yeah, to do. Yeah, absolutely. And so that feeling of threat, they can't articulate particularly well on screen, unfortunately. They don't get the chance to edit the reports. You get Australian threat and you get dairy farmer or beef farmer in, in Wales saying it's not fair. And they show lovely pictures of his cows. Don't show anything of the Australian feedlots, which no, he's competing no, with. If you could get the editing done or the, the farming community could get their story across in a much, much more obvious visual way... Mm. It would be a fairer argument right now. The debate is about subsidy. I think the farmer's on a loser. If the debate is about ecologically, if we do rewilding all over the UK, the rest of the world will be supplying that grain. Who will it come from? And let's have some pictures of what they're doing. Oh, they've chopped down a rainforest to produce yeah, yeah, the no, grain absolutely. to replace it. That's the area my farmers are most concerned about. Sure. We're looking at, at the moment, there's been, I can't remember the name of the paper, but there was a paper written five or six years ago on some work that was done in Northampton on quite a large estate over five years where they had taken land out of production mm-hmm. and they'd taken the tonnage from that field or those fields and they had progressively increased the margins around those fields mm-hmm. from two meter margins to six meter margins to nine meter margins and then put strips down the middle to increase pollinators and habitat they were actually still getting the same tonnage see that's the area that's never ever been explored isn't no it? no and, and i think that's what i'm trying to do yeah or certainly I, look at and look we will make some absolute blunders i'm absolutely 100 percent sure but that's how we'll learn that's how we learn. We learn by making mistakes. Which comes back to that bit about the appeal for you to come back to Norfolk. It's not just the skies. This project must have really, really made you think, ooh, you know, that's... But we didn't know what we were going to do before I got here. This is just involved. It was when John was here, we were, apart from his insecticide bits, we were plough, press, drill, chemicals, fertilisers, and so on and so on and so on. Lots of stewardship. You know, we've always been involved in stewardship in some way. And it's kind of just evolved... And we've kind of looked at it and said, okay, so we've got conventional, traditional conservation on one part. We've got a rewilding project in the middle. We've got regen farming on the right-hand side to the east of the estate. There's lots of it going around about regen farming. What is regen farming? And as you can tell from my grey hair, at least I've got hair, (laughs) Andrew. (laughs) But I've done a lot of things in agriculture, which I kind of question myself whether it was right now. As I've become a bit older putting on hostathion to, to, to kill on, you know, orange yep. blossom midge, constantly ploughing and cultivating land and seeing dust storms. That can't be right, can I it? I think everybody has an element of deep-rooted understanding of that. i tell you what, Nick, you're a two-part series now. We're going to cut off on this part one. Okay. Nick Badrick, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.